This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. Great to be with you. In a few moments, we'll hear from Kyle Olson, the great reporter at Breitbart News. You can go to Breitbart.com, read all of his stuff. Kyle will fill us in on Pete Buttigieg, infrastructure. We'll get an update on all that. And John Schlafly, a little late in the week this week, his column, the uh, Schlafly Report, runs on uh, townhall.com in the middle of the week. And we'll catch up with John on a lot of the issues that are facing uh, this country right now, including his vacation plans. I'm not sure the country's fa- focused on that, but welcome again. Welcome. It's Ed Martin. It's the Pro-America Report. You can always visit ProAmericaReport.com. Go over to ProAmericaReport.com and you can sign up uh, there for the daily email that I send out, what you need to know, as well as you can... Um, Get in there and you can uh, uh, see all these great interviews we're having and have had. And I was looking at a list of the interviewees uh, that I've had. It's extraordinary. Amazing number of people. And uh, they're, they're all over there on the ProAmericaReport.com. Okay. Today, we've got to talk about something. It, will ha- it has a link up to Monday. On Monday, I'm going to talk with Walter Hoy. Walter Hoy was an organizer of the first ever Men's March for Life. The idea being that men ought to be paying attention to this issue of abortion and in fact, as they're paying attention and as bringing, uh, bringing attention to the issue, there's lots of conversations about accountability for men, that men ought to be held accountable, that we need to make sure that men are in the, in the, um, not just in the argument about the legality of abortion, which is real, but also how do we, you know, it takes two to tango and making sure that fathers and men are held accountable. And, uh, and as not just a matter of saying, hey, the law should hold them accountable. No. Also, hey, how do we as a people, uh, make sure that we're doing the right thing in terms of, uh, either marriage or in terms of responsibility in general? So, uh, great. We'll talk to him and uh, on Monday, uh, about that issue because today I want to talk about the state of Mississippi. The state of Mississippi was, has a case before the Supreme Court. The case is about a ban in Mississippi. The Mississippi legislators and the governor signed the, this bill. It's now law. They say that, hey, 15 weeks is enough time. Anything after 15 weeks, you can't abort that. It's a baby. Now, some of us say, you know, from, from conception or from a heartbeat, there's lots of debate on this, but 15 weeks is what Mississippi decided. They are now up in the Supreme Court and they filed a brief and the attorney general for Mississippi, uh, a woman, important, just why not? It's important to make sure people know it's not, um, some dude, which is what the media will run around and say, oh, this is men doing this. It's, uh, the, uh, the uh, attorney general. Her name is uh, failing me right now is Fitch. Fitch is her name. She's, um, a general, excuse me, Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch. She filed this brief. The important thing is she didn't shy away from the big story, the big question, the big fight. And that is this. She makes in the brief the argument, this is the Attorney General of Mississippi, that the whole structure of Roe v. Wade, Doe v. Bolton from 1973 that created out of whole cloth a right to privacy uh, that uh, could be used to justify abortion. And she argues It's just not right. It's made up. We know that, by the way, there is a really wonderful book. Um, a guy named Clark Forsyth wrote a book, uh, about, I'd say maybe three years ago now, could be four years ago. Clark Forsyth wrote a book where he had access, uh, to all of the bench memos and the notes and things from within the, um, uh, the Supreme Court and was able to go back and look at this and say, hey, this is what actually happened. And this is they made it up. The book is called Abuse of Discretion, the Inside Story of Roe v. Wade. It was published by, I'm, boy, I'm, I'm surprised, eight years ago. It's uh, published by Encounter Books. Abuse of Discretion, Abuse of Discretion, Clark Forsyth. He had access to all the bench memos, all the inside stuff. And when he looked at it on Roe v. Wade, they really made it up. In fact, 
it's not even the justices that made up the framework, you know, the trimester uh, structure that they used. It was some of the clerks, one or two of the clerks that had this idea and they sort of pitched it to their bosses. And that's where we ended up. So, but the Mrs. Importantly, the Mississippi attorney general has said that decision was not uh, appropriate. It needs to be overturned. And now, most of the time, by the way, conservatives will shy away from some of this. They'll say, well, I'm not sure we're going to get into that. Isn't it a little bit too much? Aren't we going to be worried about what the impact is? Well, uh, Mississippi's uh, attorney general decided she was going to weigh into it and say they need to overturn Roe v. Wade. So now we're setting up in the fall, in the fall, of this coming year, so a few months from now, there will be before the Supreme Court this incredible debate on not on, not only on whether Mississippi has the right to have this law, which is limits abortion to uh, a, 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 you cannot abort after 15 weeks, but also to look at the cases that are uh, that have been standing in the way. Now, so back to just to walk through through this, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton were the cases back in 1973, but of course in in 1992 there was a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And uh, the, uh, the the Fitch did, by the way, in the brief say that the court does not have to overturn Roe v. Wade to allow the, the or Casey to allow the state of uh, Mississippi to keep this ban. But I think most people say, hey, it is um, uh, we're going to look at that framework. You see, Roe v. Wade made up not just a um, a privacy right out of, you know, kind of whole cloth, a privacy right to abortion. But they also set up this framework, the trimester framework during which, and that's what the 1992 case, uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, they, they basically say what kind of scrutiny uh, a, a law that limits abortion in the third trimester, second trimester, or first trimester, that's that what can be done. And that's what they're all subjecting to. Totally made up, totally made up. What we have in this country is that the the left has wanted to achieve certain policies that they could not pass through the legislative process, starting with Roe v. Wade, of course, but going all the way forward, marriage, uh, some of the the uh, rulings on uh, discrimination, and and some of the rulings, and, and not by the way, not all of these are you'd obje- object to on the um, uh, on the on the face, but why they're not passed by the um, by the uh, uh, legislatures is, is another point or is another point. Right. And so we've watched this march. And what happens is over time, you have people tell us, oh, well, you can never upset the court. The court can never, you know, change their opinion. You know, starry decisis. That's the term. Starry decisis means that you have a certain de- deference to previous cases. Actually, what it really means is if you're a lower court, you're bound by the uh, other uh, upper courts and you, you're not going to be uh, departing from that in, uh, uh, in any dramatic way. But stare decisis means there's going to be a, a, um, that's really the role of precedent and I'm describing also, but stare decisis is kind of a momentum. And in a way, you can understand the, the instinct. You say, well, in a society, if you have to have reliability, predictability on the law, stare decisis, this notion that you're going to defer to past precedent is a good starting point. But we've always had the tradition, you have to have a final arbiter, and and we've always had that, so that the Supreme Court can look back at things. And so the idea that the left is now saying, oh my gosh, no, no, you can't look back at this, this is too, it's been around too long, people relied on it. What this uh, great uh, brief, and I did read most of it, um, I read the beginning and the end and some of the middle, but uh, the Mississippi Attorney General, uh, what she says is, no. Lynn Fitch is her name again to praise her. She makes a good case, she makes a good, files a good brief says this is not 
appropriate. It was not sufficient. It was ill-conceived. It's been ill-applied. It's not good for us. We should change it. So that's what we're facing. This is a big deal. You know, people that understand conservatives have wanted our courts to get back to basics and to reverse some of these liberal things. It's not activism to say, go back to basics. It's not activism to say, get rid of Roe v. Wade, which was an activist decision. That's a trick they're going to do. And what they're going to prepare, you're going to see now, it's uh, it's July, you're going to see the media machine, the narrative machine start to ramp up and say things like, oh, the conservative court, it's six to three, it's going to be an activist court. I'm not sure it is six to three, by the way, it's probably five to four, depending on how uh, Chief Justice John Roberts thinks that day. But it, it is likely... You're going to hear that drumbeat, and it's likely that you're going to hear the pressure, and you're going to see the pressure, and they're going to have people, just like we had last summer, rioting in America, rioting over all sorts of conditions, right? I don't know if any of them were addressed, but there's no rioting this summer. Why is that? It's because it was ginned up. It was political. It was managed. And the media narrative is going to manage to try to say, oh, oh boy, this conservative court that Trump helped appoint is going to be activist. No. It's going to get back to basics. And one of the basics is states can limit abortion. And there is no fundamental right. And there certainly is no framework that uh, Roe v. Wade came up with that can can make this uh, uh, magically uh, work in trimesters. There's nothing to that. Science is clear now. There's no trimester that makes any sense. So it, it, that's where we're going. We'll see that. And we'll talk again on Walter Hoy on Monday uh, about his um, effort to make sure that uh, people are broadening the conversation about abortion. He started the Men's March for Life. All right, everybody, we'll take a break. We come back. We've got um, Kyle Olson of Breitbart and John Schlafly of the Schlafly Report and a lot more. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be back in a moment. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And uh, it's great privilege. And I've been looking forward to this uh, to visit with Kyle Olson, who's over at Breitbart.com. He's one of the authors over there. He is writing, uh, journalists over there, writing a lot on some key issues. Um, one of them, I, I, I don't know if he's on the Pete Buttigieg beat, but he's he's written on infrastructure a couple times. And I wanted to visit about that. But there's also, uh, he's got another piece up uh, in the last uh, few days about the Fairfax school boards. Uh, and that's in my neck of the woods. And so first well, welcome, Kyle. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. Now, listen. Let's talk about Pete Buttigieg. I mean, you have a you have a uh, uh, you have a quota that he. Someone asked him about going up to space. He said it's not in his budget. But uh, give me your overall sense. I, I was teasing you on the Pete Buttigieg uh, beat. And again, we're talking with Kyle Olson, reporter at Breitbart uh, News, and also he hosts the uh, Kyle Olson Show, which is uh, syndicated up in uh, Michigan on radio stations there on Saturdays, and his podcast episodes. I'll put him. Uh, I'll put them up on social media. But uh, what's Buttigieg up to? What's how effective is he? What's going on with the infrastructure? Uh, Bill, you know, give us a, give us a, the Buttigieg beat. Sure. Well, he he has been responsible um, for attempting to get the infrastructure package, which has been you know various uh, machinations of that. He's been responsible for trying to get that across the finish line for the Biden administration. And so I've been covering some of the statements that he's been making, and he's been saying how transportation is a justice issue. He's been framing a lot of the arguments about infrastructure in terms of social justice, environmental justice, racial justice, all of these sorts of things, doing whatever they can, whatever argument they can make to try and pass that. 
Now, of course, the problem that he's been facing is that they want to have this sweeping multi-trillion dollar infrastructure package that really sort of redefines what infrastructure is. I mean, most people, I would say, if you go out and, and ask your listeners, what is infrastructure? They would say it's roads, it's bridges, it's airports, you know, uh, those sorts of transportation modes. Well, what the Biden administration wants to do is they want to redefine that. And they, they want to have, they, they're, they're looking at human infrastructure. And so they want to provide more, um, more support in, in, when it comes to children. Or they want to have, or they view healthcare as infrastructure, and so they've really sort of defined this, redefined this, and have this all-encompassing behemoth package that a lot of Republicans and, frankly, several Democrats are just not signing up for. Again, we're, ta- we're talking with Kyle Olson, who's a reporter over at Breitbart News, uh, Breitbart.com. Kyle, I just found it a couple of weeks ago. This is what really made me, it, it triggered me to call you to talk, and, and is you covered Buttigieg. He actually said that the infrastructure plan will stop climate change. Now, how does he do that? And more importantly, it, it, you know, he ran for president, and he was a, a, he was a um, left-leaning mayor of a failing city, so maybe he doesn't care. It doesn't seem to me that telling everyone that infrastructure will save climate change is going to help pass it. It's not going to necessarily help Manchin vote for it or, or uh, Collins. Is he just out there grandstanding to his base? Is he, you know, what's he, how does he make that uh, actually sound plausible, and why is he doing it? <laughs> Well, his, his argument is because they're putting a huge emphasis on electric vehicles, um, electric, they claim, is better than gas-powered, even though they don't really talk about the amount of energy and power that goes into actually charging electric vehicles. And that has to come from somewhere, and that typically comes from coal-fired power plants. They don't really talk about that. Um, but he's making this right. argument that because we're going to put so much emphasis and so much money into electric vehicle production and the charging stations that are are you know spread throughout the country and all of that therefore we're going to be able to stop climate change which i think is well one is absurd um but two it's such a <laughs> simplistic view of the way that this is would actually work but as i said they are they're grabbing for anything any argument that they can possibly make to try and get this across the finish line but what they're finding is that there were a handful of republicans in the senate uh, because they need 10 Republicans to basically support, uh, actually, I should say, not filibuster. Um, and so right. they had 10 Republicans that were supporting this bipartisan deal. But then all of a sudden, the president came out after that press conference with the Republicans and said they're tying a tax increase um, to this to make, you know, to basically, quote unquote, pay for it. And so it, it just it doesn't seem to me, based on sort of reading the tea leaves and seeing what statements Republicans are making and some of the Democrats like Joe Manchin, um, that this is actually ever going to come together. But that's not stopping Secretary Pete and others from making these wild claims that if we can just pass this infrastructure proposal, the waters will stop rising and the <laughs> earth will cool. Yeah. Remember, remember when uh, uh, Barack Obama said that? What they do is they create these very simplistic arguments, and and that was a good one. And another one was what Secretary Pete said about if we can just pass this, then, you know, we will stop climate change, which is just absurd. But that's that's what they try to do. 
We're talking again with Kyle Olson. He's a reporter over at Breitbart News. He also is host of the Kyle Olson Show, which is up in Michigan on the radio stations up there on Saturdays and also has podcasts up there. We'll put them up on social media. I, I do want to switch over, Kyle, because you have this expertise uh, in your backyard there in um, Michigan. Uh, it hasn't gotten that much press uh, nationally yet. Maybe it will start to. Uh, the former Detroit police chief, James Craig, is running for governor, Michigan governor. He's a Republican. And I know he was on, I think he was on Tucker. Uh, but how is um, how is that? playing out first of all what's his what's he his profile how does it look and and what's your sense of that race sure well he did as you said he's probably the highest profile candidate that has announced so far um but there are a lot of questions around his record um, as the detroit police chief one of the things that he's the, one of the points that he's been making is that when you know antifa and black lives matter were rioting in seattle and portland and chicago and kenosha wisconsin and places like that detroit didn't burn that's that's sort of his mantra um but of course if you look at the data um detroit is regularly the most violent city in america and to put it in perspective we hear a lot about chicago um, detroit actually has nearly twice the amount of violent crimes that chicago has um, that's data from, I think it was 2017 right. uh, or a couple, couple of years ago. And so he has made previous statements about he wants um, a 10-round limit for magazines. He wants to reinstall, uh, re- reinstate the assault weapons ban. There's, uh, he actually led the state in, in issuing tickets and citations when it came to enforcing Governor Whitmer's coronavirus orders. So I think there's a lot of things that he's going to have to answer for, especially in a Republican primary, because a lot of his positions, they he may say he's a Republican, but a lot of his positions are not conservative. Well, and what is, is that? Maybe that's why we haven't heard much about him. Is it is it um, I don't know the wrong word, but is it is it at least a political fraud? Is he is he just um, taking advantage of the moment? Is he fed up with Whitmer? What's the what's your read on it? Well, it, I guess there's been reporting and uh, the former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party has stated that he was recruited by the party to run. Um, and I think that their argument is that if we can have someone who has a law enforcement background, who is black, who comes from the city of Detroit, um, then maybe he can increase the vote share in Detroit and then therefore win the election. Um, I think that's sort of the the argument that they're making, or at least that that's their thinking. But as I said, a lot of his positions are not they're not conservative. I mean, another one was in 2017, he refused to enforce President Trump's immigration orders. And Detroit is not a sanctuary city. So there's just a lot of things that um, that I think other candidates um, and, and others are going to bring up and say, uh, how do you answer for this? And what you may be a Republican, but Liz Cheney is a Republican. Mitt Romney is a Republican. <laughs> That's just a be, good one. Yeah, exactly. Or just just saying you're a Republican yeah. doesn't make you a conservative. Right. Well, you're exactly right. Uh, again, we're talking Kyle Nos- Kyle Olson, the reporter at Breitbart uh, News, uh, Breitbart.com. Uh, real quick, I, one reason this is so important is that um, Whitmer has been one of the sort of, uh, if you like her, you say toughest. If you don't like her, you say the nastiest governors at the lockdowns and, and really. So you'd, you'd sort of think in this environment, she'd be vulnerable, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons why uh, people ought to be paying attention a little bit to this uh, this primary. 
I would say she probably is the most vulnerable Democrat incumbent in the country, uh, in, at least in terms mm. of governors. Um, she's uh, the, the Republican Governors Association has Michigan on its very short list of states that it is focusing on. And so, yes, she has she has very little to show for in the, in the last two plus years that she's been in office. Um, her orders directly relate uh, directly um, led to the deaths of, of elderly people in nursing homes because she had a policy very similar to Andrew Cuomo in New York that put coronavirus positive patients into nursing homes to recuperate, which then spread the virus throughout nursing homes. And there are at least at least six to seven thousand elderly patients in nursing homes died because of that policy. And there has been reporting that it could be 100 percent higher because there's questions about whether or not the, the reporting of the numbers was accurate. Um, and the, the number of businesses that have closed, schools that were closed, and the impact that that had on academic success for kids, she has no record to run on. And so um, it, it's going to be interesting to see if she's able to make an argument for why she should be reelected. Um, she's had all these scandals, flying to Florida on a private jet, her uh, top deputy right. is going to Florida <laughs> for, for spring break when she told everyone else not to. She doesn't have a lot going for her. Hmm. Well, we'll be watching it. Well, listen, thank you, Kyle Olson. I, I have to run. Kyle Olson, a reporter over at Breitbart News. Go to Breitbart.com, follow his stuff. I'll put it up on social media. Also, he's got a podcast and a radio show. Thanks very much, Kyle. Appreciate your insight. Anytime. Thank you. All right. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. It's been too long. It's been too long. It's been a week or so. I don't know, longer. John Schlafly, who is one half of the Schlafly Report, he and Andy Schlafly do the weekly Schlafly Report, which debuts over at townhall.com and is our sister site and is archived at phyllisschlafly.com. John is an attorney uh, with expertise in uh, actually an advanced degree in tax law. He also is a writer, as I mentioned, and has been long one of the leading executives, the directors of the Phyllis Schlafly organizations. Welcome back, John Schlafly. How are you? Well, I'm good, Ed. How are you today? I'm fine. I, I believe if my calendar's right, you'll be escaping the heat of the central Midwest to go up uh, into Michigan to get to the cool. Is that right? Coming up soon. But I hope you'll have your phone available to uh, still be able to report in. Is that, is that hope, in the coming weeks? Uh, yes, that that is is true. Uh, now, I don't know if Congress is going to take off an August recess because everything's coming to a coming to a head in the Senate uh, in regard to infrastructure are actually you you know the 3.5 trillion starting with the 1 trillion and uh you know it's a scary time in our government um the the left has basically decided this is it and uh uh while they didn't get they couldn't get the bill passed uh closure yesterday they now it appears that they claim that uh, 10 weak need republican senators have signed on to a compromise, and they may make it through the next time. So we've got to keep an eye on that, uh, Ed. 
Uh, John, before we get to that, I want to pause and ask you, you know, this is John Schlafly, the, the son, the oldest son of the late Phyllis Schlafly. How would Phyllis have thought about the the very public dynamic with Liz Cheney as, I mean, a very prominent Republican who is, you know, just going against not just her, uh, not just against the president, President Trump, you know, once someone loses the presidency and, and you know, a lot of people jump ship or whatever. But in this case, she just went against the, the whole Republican caucus. Uh, how do you how would you know, how would Phyllis look at that? How, how do you look at it in terms of what is this? It's pretty uncommon to be so dramatically uh, against your own party. Yes, it is, and there are examples in the in the past of of Republican women who have uh, refused to support Ronald Reagan, for example. There were several prominent examples, mm. and there's always been a few like that. But as you point out, Ed, this is a little different. Uh, you know, it um, you know it perhaps is an example that if someone really burns their bridges, then they have nothing left to to lose, and. Uh. Um, and Liz Cheney, uh, you know, she probably has uh, a, a future ahead of She has many resources other than her position in the House of Representatives. And I'm sure she will land on her feet after she is <laughs> defeated for reelection next year. Um, provided, of course, the Republicans in Wyoming can agree on one candidate to challenge her. If there's 10 candidates, right. no, she'll probably squeak in. Yeah. But, um, um, all right, John, we'll, we'll have to watch John I want because Liz Cheney yeah. is, yeah, she's bad news. Now, I want to, John, I want to slide over. The, the column this week is called Infrastructure Bills, Socialism on Steroids. So what the media is feeding America, the narrative machine is saying, ah, don't you want to build bridges and rebuild the roads? Oh, well, you got to spend money on that. It's just a bunch of money. Well, what's really in these? There's really two versions that are floating out there. One is a lot of building, maybe a lot of bridges, maybe a lot of airports and lots of other stuff. The other one is dramatic. And you call it in your column, uh, Socialism on Steroids. What What's going on here well they've you know they've you know it's child care and it's uh, all sorts of social services are all been redefined as infrastructure and even the smaller bill though uh uh it's not just it's not primarily roads and bridges because it includes uh climate change and it includes equity you know so and 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 uh biden is from the day he took office he announced that the whole of government approach, as he put it in his initial batch of executive orders, will be focused on climate change and equity. Well, that's what's in infrastructure. So um, equity, uh, I don't know if you're aware, Ed, but uh, they've identified, and uh, the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, has identified certain highways and bridges as uh as being um, representing white supremacy, and so they have to be torn down. And once they tear those down, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if we will net have any increase in roads and bridges at all, uh, because you know the Biden administration is not really interested in that. That's just a pretext. Uh, infrastructure is a pretext for getting climate change and equity, which is what it's all about, and remaking our our suburbs, uh, and, um, you know, basically imposing uh, critical race theory on every aspect of the government, from the, the public schools 
and uh, uh, so um, you know there there's no way that we can pass money there's no there's no way that a bill like this can pass the Congress and not include these uh, leftist ideas they will be embedded in the system the bureaucrats that implement them will seek to enforce those ideas uh, we're talking with John Schlafly. John, um, is the uh, is what are the chances at this point? Do you think of these things? I I I, I t- said did an interview earlier today, and I said to someone, look, a lot of times you see like a kabuki theater where the Republicans look like they're resisting something, but they're not really. I, I think they are resisting the massive overhaul. I'm not sure they're resisting the spending, but you know the the trillion what is it a trillion dollars of spending that looks like it's more direct spending. I think they're sort of cutting a deal to put in their stuff. And they, that may be, is that what your sense is? Well, there, uh, it appears there are 10 Republicans who are, who say they are open to doing a deal on what they call infrastructure. We'll see how far that goes. Uh, most of the Republicans are, are saying no to it because they see what's in there and they're saying no to the, the second deal. And they're saying no to breaking the filibuster, and they're saying no to H.R. 1. Uh, but, you know, there's re- many Republicans that don't, that are uncomfortable saying no to everything. And they're going to want to do a deal. Some of them will. And mm-hmm. maybe, you know, my guess is that something may squeak through, and we'll just have to see how bad it is. Well, and John, we're talking with John Schlafly again. His uh, columns run at townhall.com and archived over at phyllisschlafly.com. In your column this week, John, you mentioned uh, inflation. I saw in the town hall the other night that Joe Biden was asked about inflation. He said, oh, no, no, that's not inflation. Is it? Think prices have gone up, but uh, that's uh, prices have gone up. Uh, lumber, I don't know if you know, lumber is uh, it's gone up because um, everyone's out of work and they couldn't get the lumber. It was uh, it was incoherent, both in terms of an answer and also economics. Uh, but the fact is, there, there is not just a looming threat of inflation. We have some inflation under uh, ongoing right now. Uh, what's the likelihood that we're in a uh, in a in a real bind here? I know you write about this in the column, but that we can't keep spending at this point uh, without raising interest rates and dealing with serious inflation. Well, that's right, Ed, and we have shortages, as you mentioned. Uh, lumber was kind of the the canary in the coal mine, uh, but really all tight kinds of building materials and uh, materials that are used by all sorts of businesses are in short supply. And then labor is in short supply because so many Americans who left the labor force have decided that they can get along and not get back to work. And so with these shortages, inflation is almost inevitable. And Unfortunately, Ed, most Americans, the majority of Americans do not remember when yeah, I was just gonna a say, very yep. painful burst of inflation in the decade of the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, that was yeah. uh, President Reagan's first job was to was to tamp down that inflation. He succeeded in doing that. It took a painful recession to do it and uh but it did happen and he did do it and i hope we don't have to go through that again 
Yep, I think that's I think that's really the question. Most people, I mean, the, the part of the problem is most people don't remember that or see what it could be like. All right, John, I got to run. John Schlafly, the Schlafly Report. I'll post it up on social media again. Available over at townhall.com and also archived at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks, John. We'll talk again next week, and we will be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Mrs. Schlafly was a courageous and articulate voice for traditional values and common sense for more than 70 years. Now continuing that legacy, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. The donor class of the Republican Party is immensely powerful, but principles are still more important than money in the GOP. Before trying to push a liberal anti-American agenda on Republican voters, these donors should read a copy of A Choice, Not an Echo by Phyllis Schlafly. In it, Phyllis explained that grassroots Republicans can and will make a difference. This was put into action in 1964 when they toppled the powerful Nelson Rockefeller with a candidate from the small western state of Arizona. Candidate Barry Goldwater lacked the nearly infinite wealth of the Rockefellers, just as grassroots conservatives lack access to the Bush-Cheney-Rove gravy train of big money donors. While conservative Republicans typically come to power as a result of hard work and grassroots support, Liz Cheney is an heiress to the fortune acquired by her father, Dick Cheney, from the globalist Halliburton Corporation. Liz Cheney sometimes sides with liberals on globalism, immigration, and porous election procedures, while Donald Trump and the grassroots are solidly on the conservative side of these fundamental issues. After Liz Cheney unsuccessfully attempted to purge conservatives from the House, it was refreshing to see Cheney receive an overdue comeuppance when she was removed from her place in the House Republican leadership. This is not only a triumph of good over the Trump-hating Liz Cheney, this is a historic victory for the grassroots. The American dream of our founding fathers is for every voter to have a political choice, not merely an echo. However, it's up to grassroots activists to seize this dream. If no one steps up to be the choice champion of conservatives, the donor-class Republicans will win every time. What we lack in massive bankrolls must be made up in real sweat equity. It's not too early to consider what action you can take to make the House of Representatives and U.S. Senate bastions of conservatism next November. What will your role be? Will you answer phones? Will you knock doors? Will you run? The choice is ultimately up to you, but never let yourself be intimidated into silence by the so-called professionals who boast large campaign budgets. Grassroots patriotism still works. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Our mission, clearly stated at phyllisschlafly.com, is to enable and mobilize grassroots activism on behalf of cherished conservative values. You're encouraged today to go online and read the goals we support and those we oppose. Then join us. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening and come back next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Hey, I can't wait to talk about this um, this final segment uh, heading into the great weekend. I hope everybody has a great weekend. I, I was in California. I've told you all a couple times last week with General Flynn. And um, by the way, visit ProAmericaReport.com to check all these great interviews. And uh, thank you, as always, to Joanna for helping us book our guests. Uh, we had um, great uh, Kyle Olson was great from Breitbart News and John Schlafly, as always. Um so I was in Yuba City, California. Yuba City, California. Great town. What a great city. We had a blast. And uh, there was a woman that came to speak at the big event with General Flynn. Her name is Marlena Pavlos Hackney. 
Marlena Pavlos Hackney. She's from Holland, Michigan. And she is someone who was born and raised in Poland and fled from Poland in the 80s before the fall of the Iron Curtain. And she um, came to America. She got her uh, citizenship and she started a business. Okay, so she runs a restaurant in Holland, Michigan. And when the first I saw her speak, I saw her speak. She's stunning. I mean, she is just stunning. She's amazing. She was arrested on March 19th on a contempt charge. And here's what happened. She decided she shut down the first time. She shut down the first time when she was told to. And then they opened back up and she decided she couldn't shut down again. And they told her to shut down. She said she wouldn't. And she said she wanted to have her freedom and she wanted to live in, you know, in America. She's an American citizen. And so she was a bench warrant and she was arrested for being open. She charged 15, fined $15,000. But when I heard her speak, she was extraordinary because she talked about why she and her parents fled from um, Poland. And she talked about, you know, here's a timeline. Yeah, March 19th, she's arrested. The restaurant was then closed. They went and closed her restaurant. Uh, they forced it closed because she was arrested. And then she was finally released from jail four, four days later. And uh, so, but the restaurant was um, was closed, right? I mean, she, they forced it closed. But so it's, um, she spoke in um, Yuba City, she was flew in from Michigan just to talk about this. She spoke for about a half an hour. And she said, look, I, my family, we came from Poland because we were afraid of what was happening there. And, and they were targeting people and they were not letting people have their basic freedoms. And she said very eloquently, this is what they were doing in Poland. Now, I'm not someone who does like the slippery slope very well. I mean, I, you know, you don't buy it. But when you hear a voice, and I used to listen to Kitty Worthman, the incredible um, national American leader uh, who was born in Vienna, and she watched Nazism sweep across uh, her home country in Austria. In fact, she sat in a room, a classroom, when she was, I think, eight years old, and Hitler was there. She was born in the early, in the mid twenties. Uh, I think she was born in like the 1926 or so, and he came into, and she later fled because she was helping actually helping the allies uh in the war in world war ii as a young woman and she was she was um spirited out of vienna because she was had been discovered as uh, someone helping the but my point here is that that was after the war she was helping against the soviet communists but she spoke across america about what she saw in austria and i'll never forget hearing kitty worthman say one of the problems in austria was a lot of austrians wanted help they wanted to feel safe. They had an economy that was a mess. And so Hitler said, I'll help you. And, and they, they, she said they fell for it, meaning that they went for it because they wanted help. They were vulnerable. And so Kitty warned about creeping socialism. She warned about sweeping socialism. But boy, I heard the echoes of Kitty Worthman, the great American Born in Austria, American citizen who speaks and still speaks. Um, she doesn't travel very much, but extraordinary. That's what I heard as I listened to this restaurateur from Michigan talk about what they were doing. And she was saying, let me warn you, Marlena Pavlos, Pavlos Hackney. Marlena Pavlos Hackney is her name from Holland, Michigan. And you've seen her. She was, I think she was on Tucker or one of them uh, months ago, but to see her in person, and to hear how she talked about why we need to not, she was not arguing about one aspect of this or that. She was saying too much encroachment in multiple ways on our lives was going on. 
whether it was mandates, shutdowns. In, in her case, they used government. They used force against her. The attorney general used special cops to go after her. She talked. She mentioned about the uh, surveillance. She mentioned the, the growing, not, not creeping, sweeping fascism that's taken over this country. Powerful powerful speaker so i was very privileged to be there grateful to meet her i hope she's going to come on the show marlena pavlos hackney and i'll put up on social media her story unbelievable all right everybody listen have a great weekend lots to do lots of things happening be encouraged it's ed martin here on a pro america report we'll be back next week visit proamericareport.com thank you as always to Noah, our producer thank you to joanna for helping get guests and thank you for you listening i'm ed martin it's the pro america report talk to you next week America Report on The Answer, San Diego.